Today's sermon comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. My friends, it is a delight to be with you in worship. And for those of you who are streaming at home or who will watch on demand, it is good that you are here with us in spirit. The last two weeks, I spoke to our current polarization. Those sermons are online. You can listen to those if you like. But today, I'm thinking about heading towards the cross because Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. We begin Lent where we walk with Jesus up to the cross in anticipation of the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. So this is the last of our, what we call epiphany texts, texts that reveal, make plain the nature of God in Christ Jesus. And so we will think together along those lines, all the while knowing that Sunday, Wednesday is Ash Wednesday and we start our, our Lenten practices. We start thinking about what we might give up. We start thinking about uh, what it means to slim down spiritually so that we can have a delightful and full Easter. Now that I've given that preamble, let us turn our hearts together toward God in prayer. Creator God, we are thankful for the life that you have given us. And we confess that we haven't always dealt well with that gift. We have been unwise wayward, sinful. Yet it is the confession of our faith and the belief of our hearts that while humanity turned away from you, you sent your Son Christ to reconcile us unto yourself, and we are grateful. You sent your Son Christ to cultivate in us a mind and heart for your kingdom, a kingdom not of our own but of yours. In like manner, we believe and confess that you have sent your Holy Spirit to be our counselor and our guide and our friend to make us a community of care. We are grateful for the gift. And we ask God now in this hour, in this place as a community, send your Spirit freshly that the transfiguration story may live in renewed ways in our hearts, bringing renewal to our lives and renewal to places we take this story. 
It is in the matchless name of your Son, Christ the Lord, that we pray, and God's people say together, Amen. Is a week a long time? I suppose it all depends on your vantage point. I know when a week felt like a long time for me. My friends and I, about 10 years ago, watched a very inspiring documentary about food. The man in the documentary did a 40-day juice fast, and it changed his life. So we thought, why don't we kind of as a spiritual practice do 10 days where we don't eat anything, we just drink juice? Very excitedly, we went to the grocery store and bought more produce than you typically do because when you juice the produce, you go through a lot of it fast. The first day started out wonderfully. Colleen and I sliced up apples, juiced the apples, juiced carrots, nice sweet stuff so that we can mask the flavor of kale and spinach and all that other stuff. I walked around with my juice all day long telling everybody about my new juice lifestyle and how it was going to change the world. Day two, thought we'd try some different juices, so I juiced a cucumber. To this day, I cannot drink cucumber water. It just is too much. I had too much cucumber juice, and it's, it, it, sets, it sets me off. I got a little PTSD. And then we started juicing peppers. Those things should never be juiced. By Wednesday, I just was angry and irritable, and I wanted a pizza. A week can be a very long time, or it can be a fast time. A week isn't very long when you plan for worship. Inevitably, every Tuesday as the ministry staff gets together, we, we do morning prayer at 9 a.m., and then we gather in Reverend Chambers' office because he's got a round table. We sit there, and we, we review the Sunday before, and we look to the Sunday coming. And inevitably, every time Reverend Bell goes, what, Sunday? Wasn't that like a month ago? Because so much happens in the life of a church and in the life of a minister. And then we start planning for the next Sunday, and it seems as though when I step up into this pulpit every week, I just had the feeling a second ago, didn't I just do this? And now I have to have something new to say. A week can go fast, a week can go slow. What do I talk about that today? Well, the way our text begins, it says six days after, or six days later, Stanley Hauerwas notes, it's six days after dramatic exchanges in Caesarea of Philippi that this story takes place. Six days later. A lot of times when you're reading Scripture, you might gloss over things, but I don't think the six days bit here is an accident. Why six days? Well, on the seventh day, where our story takes place, something remarkable does happen, and it is recorded, and we call it the transfiguration. Jesus takes some of his closest disciples up onto a mountaintop or a hilltop, and there it says he's transfigured. What does that mean? I really don't know except for to say that there's something about his figure that changes. His face is shining. His clothes are radiant and white. There's something here about the, the glory of the Lord being present upon Jesus. And there, appearing with Jesus, the manifestation of two of the great heroes of the people of God, Moses and Elijah. Almost certainly we are to interpret this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of both the law, as Moses is a lawgiver, and the prophets, as Elijah was one of the 
prophets par excellence. And then we hear the audible voice of God. This is my son, the beloved. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. It tells us that the disciples fall on their face in fear, and I understand that. What I understand less is so much of contemporary Christianity through our songs and the way we talk in church. We talk about God in such familiar terms. It's almost like God is kind of our pal, our buddy. There's a lot of familiarity. And what I don't want to do is dispel any notions that God isn't intimate with us, but I want to remind us that if God is that which nothing greater can be thought, if God is the one who can speak the cosmos into existence, then almost certainly an encounter with that which we cannot even imagine in our minds would bring us a bit of fear. It's so beyond. And so they tremble and fall to the ground. They don't know what's going on, but they are in the midst of the glory and grandeur of God. They are before God in the flesh. Jesus tells them to get up, and Peter says, Lord, this is amazing. Should I build some dwellings or these altars for each three, for for you and Moses and Elijah? And he's told not to. You can understand why. He wants to make meaning out of what he just saw, and we're meaning-making creatures, but rather they're instructed not to talk about it until the day of resurrection. It's a fantastic story. But it begins six days later. Why six days? You don't know where your mind goes with six days and almost certainly thinking of the transfiguration as being on the seventh day. But mine goes right to the beginning of Scripture. And almost certainly the author is trying to drive our minds right to that story told at the beginning of the Bible. You know the one says, in the beginning, God created. Day one, God creates this and that, and God says it is good. Day two, God creates this and that, and God says it is good. Day three follows the same way. Day four follows the same way, right up into day six, and there we have the creation of humans, and there on day six, God takes a look and sees the manifold of creation, the beauty, the, the, the biodiversity of life, and then God says, it is very good. And that's the creation story we tell. And for too long, at least within the 20th century and the 19th, we have been confused at thinking this was only a, this is a material account of origins. It's not. So its purpose is not to tell us how creation came about, but almost certainly it's to tell us what it's for. It's for that seventh day that is still part of the story, the, the day where God rests. Not because God is tired or has a need for the rest, but rather God rests with creation, delighting in what He's made. Almost certainly, creation is for this delight with God. Let me suggest to you this morning that the transfiguration story happens on the seventh day to remind uh, the listener that It, too, is about the meaning of creation, the fulfillment of creation, what creation is ultimately for. You see, if you follow the Christian tradition long enough, you will see that Christ is the actual meaning of creation. 
Therefore, we can't read about creation and know it well from Genesis forward. We have to read it Christ backward. In Christ, we have the divine and the human or the creaturely coming together as one. In creation, what you have is the creator creating creation to dwell in it, to delight in it, to be with it. That's even the meaning of the temple, a place where God and creatureliness come together. In Jesus, we have the ultimate purpose for all things, my friends, that God was such a creative, loving God would make creation and then draw creation through humanity, through a person named Christ, ultimately, into his own life and from there transform and transfigure everything. Six days later, Jesus shows what this looks like in his own person. The glory of God is revealed as God has assumed flesh and brought divinity and humanity together. Don't give Peter a hard time. It's not every day you see something like that. He wants to mark the occasion. And we're meeting making creatures. Reminds me of the time I saw a man who had a beautiful sleeve of tattoos. I don't have any tattoos. I'm a little too risk-averse. I'm worried what they'll look like when I'm 80. But he had a whole sleeve of them, and I, I asked him about the tattoos, and he began telling me about what they meant. And then I saw one that I wouldn't stereotypically call masculine, and he was a real tough-looking guy. It had a caterpillar, cocoon, and a butterfly. There's nothing wrong with men liking creation, by the way, but it just seemed like something that he wouldn't have on his arm. So I said, what's up with all those? And he goes, well, this is the one that got me started. This is, this is the main thing. And I said, why? He said, you know, I've been trying to get sober for 25 years. And when I finally did, I went down and I have had this put on me to remind me of the change. We like to make meaning in our world, so Peter wants to build, yet he's told not to. Keep walking and wait. My suggestion for us today as we approach a Lent on Wednesday, a Nash Wednesday, is that the transfiguration story is sort of a microcosm of Christian spirituality for the time that we live in. We all live in a time that is after the ascension of Jesus and before His second coming, and it's a time of working with the Spirit to do the kingdom of God's stuff in this world, but it's also a time of waiting. And frankly, if I'm honest, the the days that we live in, the time that we live in, they often just feel like days one and two, all the way to day six of life. It doesn't seem to me like we have a whole lot of day sevens, you know, those transfiguration moments where God just makes it palpably clear, I am here with you. Most of the time that we live in feels like going to work, commuting, say a prayer, drop your kids off at basketball or orchestra, maybe read a verse or two of Scripture. Try to schedule vacation, have too much work to go on it, make it to church. Listen to the news and tell everybody how sad the news is, and then find yourself in church on Sunday. Our days are 
often filled with what we consider to be mundane. We just keep moving. We keep watching and waiting. Day one, day two, day three. That's life. But every so often, we have a day seven kind of experience. We have a, a moment. I think we've all had one. That's why you're here. A moment in time where it was plain to you that God wasn't very far away from you. A moment where you have a realization, an aha, that God has you wrapped up in the divine embrace. You don't feel it all the time, but there's that one time, and, and maybe when you even tell your friends about it, you don't even know if you can believe it yourself, but you knew it happened. I had one of these the other day. My family loves to go to Evensong. My kids like to draw pictures of what I preach about, and they love to sing the songs that Nick plays and writes. Reverend Chambers writes a lot of the music, and sometimes he puts the liturgy that we say around communion uh, into music. And so lately, the way we start the communion liturgy, which is the same communion liturgy that we do here, only it's fuller. It has the rest of the material that we've kind of uh, truncated for the sake of time. And so it begins, the Lord be with you. Now, instinctively, when I say that to you, what do you say back? Lord be with you. So here's how the liturgy's been going. He sits at the keyboard and he goes, the Lord be with you. And then we sing, and also with you. And then we continue on singing through the liturgy. Well, I was at home sitting at the kitchen table doing something with Ruby, and Colleen was at the dishes cleaning out a bottle that Max just... Uh, ate from, and Marcella was in the dining room, an adjacent room, sitting with her back to us, doing her homework at the table, and Colleen gets uh, Reverend Chambers' song stuck in her head, so she's often singing around the house, and she says, the Lord be with you, and I saw Marcella pop her head out and go, and also with you, and I got a glimpse. Now, I know you can't understand what I'm saying because you weren't there, but I got a glimpse of God. I just first a moment of realization that some of our faith formation stuff in the home is, is kind of sticking in, kind of hanging on to my daughters, which, so that made me feel a little better. But, but no, I, I saw something deeper than that. I, I saw this innocent seven-year-old sweet image of God made person, concrete irreplaceable person who has her own dignity and value. She stands before God responding to liturgy. And I just knew right then and there that God was real and was with us. I didn't have a question then. I didn't struggle with it. I just knew. Of course, we've all had moments like this where it's like a lightning bolt. that comes from the outside, bam, and you sense God. We have a seventh-day experience. You might want to mark it like Peter, but I want to challenge you with this. You already know that so much of your life is going to look like days one through six. It's going to be normal. And you'll believe and confess that God's near. You might not feel it. You might wonder. You might doubt. You might struggle. And so my advice is to keep walking. Keep climbing that hill, even when the days seem mundane. But I'd like to challenge you with more. Though I'm saying this story's a microcosm and a bit of an archetype, I, I think that to be plain, to be fair, days one through six aren't as ordinary as we like to make them out. 
The reality is God is there. God is there. God is not silent. If you have eyes to see, if you have ears to hear, if you have hearts that are open, God is near you. Even when you're not having mountaintop experiences, even when it's not a day seven event, God is there. So I was driving to a mountain on Thursday, actually, in Suwannee, Tennessee. I was going up the mountain when I heard a psychologist say something profound to me. I heard it on a podcast. A psychologist said that our brains are wired to prove what we already believe. So if we believe something about somebody else, whether it's another group of people, another race, or another political party, we're going to look for evidence of what we already believe in the world. If we believe something about ourselves, that we are, we are good at something or bad at something, or if we're, if we're not lucky, or if we are lucky, our brains are going to look to prove that theory out. So if you're a person who thinks that life can only be days one through six, if you're a person that thinks that God isn't already present near you, if you're a person who struggles to see it, to taste it, to touch it, to dwell in the embrace of the divine, maybe the first step today is to critique your thinking. Maybe the first step is to stop and say, how am I narrowing the possibilities for God to speak to me and be with me? So my advice to you is to keep walking and to keep climbing, but to keep your eyes open, your ears open, and to open your heart, because God is there, and God is still working to transfigure you and me.